This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. All right. Okay. Are we recording? Good. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, back after after an extensive absence. Uh, with me, as usual, my colleague Ezra Klein. Uh, Sarah, Cl- I don't know where Sarah Cliff is. Can I be honest? Yeah. I really wish she was here today. Yeah. There's a bunch of healthcare news that we really want to talk about, but I think we're going to wait until the next episode of The Weeds to talk about, because to talk about... Obamacare markets and Aetna leaving and the competition and the merger denial without Sarah Cliff, it would actually make me too sad. And you all don't want to hear me crying on the We're going to have a much better, much weedsier discussion next week about that. Can I make a quick announcement? Let's do it. So Vox.com, the wonderful website that Matt and I founded with uh, many others is doing a bunch of hiring right now. And I occasionally get emails from people on the weeds asking how to get into journalism or saying they, they like what we're doing. So if you do like what we're doing and you are looking for a job, you should go check out voxmedia.com. They have a careers tab on that page. Again, voxmedia.com. Uh, we're looking for, among other things, an engagement editor, a story editor for our video team, a foreign affairs staff writer, an associate editor for policy. A lot of interesting jobs there. Uh, some of you in the audience may be interested in them. So if you want to check that out, voxmedia.com, check out the careers page. Yes, yes, please do. As you can see, we're having trouble getting a full podcasting roster together. Yeah, we may. We, it, so, it, there's some chance you may just get called into pinch hit on the weeds at any time. Yeah, we, you you could be on the weeds, maybe. Um, it, it's very exciting. So we're going to have a, a great show. Uh, we got a, a solid, solid white paper, very relevant to the campaign, but also also nice and researchy. Uh, going to talk a little about Hillary Clinton's transition. Uh, but I think first we wanted to talk about um, some stories that that have come out uh, in the New York Times in the past couple weeks that sort of raise a, a larger question about the financing of think tanks in Washington and the extent to which the research product. Is is possibly compromised by financial interests, the extent to which there's there's disclosure around it. Um, and I, I think it's a I, I think it's in, in many ways a, a difficult issue. You know, these were um Can we before yeah. we get into the complexity of it, do you want to just summarize what the New York Times did here? Because it's great reporting. It, it's important. And it takes something I think we we're sort of gonna to want to talk about the strong and the weak form of this corruption, but they're really looking at the the potential, the strong form of it. So do you want to give kind of an overview of what they were? Yeah. Saying? I mean it's this kind of thing is tricky because it's it's in the news pages of the New York Times, so it doesn't come with clear thesis statements, which I, I often find a, a little bit frustrating. Um but they have a pair of stories, essentially, one about Brookings's metropolitan policy program and one looking at the American Enterprise Institute's work on uh, network neutrality, I, I believe. And and in the Brookings case, they're showing um, some pretty clear evidence that uh, – it's not 100% clear how it started, but but Brookings was writing about a sort of particular housing project uh, in the Bay Area in a favorable way while also getting money from a developer who was involved with it. And then the the people involved sort of started pitching the donor on like, well, we could do more stuff for you if, if you give us more money. And, and it was unusual because, you know, there's a lot of as Ezra was saying, sort of like weak forms of, of corruption and, and conflict of interest. But here you really had um, the kind of pull from the think tank right. where they were essentially saying, hey, look, here's all the all the quo we can give you if yep. we get some quid. And, and I do want to note one thing on this because I think this is actually reversing the polarity people normally expect when they think about political – money and corruption. And I, I want to know, this is actually true in politics itself, too. It isn't just a think tank. I mean, we tend to think in a stylized model that what is happening is the developer is going to Brookings with a sack of money, or for that matter, the developer is going to the politician with a sack of money. And sometimes what is actually happening is the think tank is going to the, the developer or the politician is going to the businessman and saying, hey, Look at what I could do for you. Uh, the degree to which they say that very clearly. In this case, Brookings said it pretty damn clearly. But the degree to which they say it clearly, I think, can change. 
But sometimes what is happening when you see these these big transfers isn't so much that someone with a financial interest was using money to push their agenda, but that the recipient of the money saw an opportunity to try to extract money to push an agenda. Yeah, and, and this is where I, I do feel that the the newspapering conventions and lack of clear thesis statements sort of hurt the piece because they, they don't quite say what it is that they think was wrong here, right? It's it's clearly the whole story is written and, you know, to like yep. cast them in a very bad light. But there isn't the way you would in a magazine. The editor would have said, okay, guys, you clearly think you've nailed these assholes. You clearly <laughs> think they've done something wrong. But now you need to write down exactly what it is you think that they have. So give me give me the thesis statement. What did they do wrong? Done wrong. On one level, I'm not sure that they did do anything wrong. <laughs> oh, really? I, mean, I have a more negative interpretation. I, I, I mean, I mean, it looks incredibly sleazy. It looks terrible for them. But but I look back on this like I've read the papers. It seems to me that they were correct on the merits on the issue and trying to get some money. So so let's let's make the Brookings case here for a minute because yeah. they have come out um, on Medium.com, which has become a place that places attacked by the New York Times go to put up their responses. And they 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 basically argue out why they think this is an unfair hit piece. And there's a lot going on in in the piece, in the response. I'm not right. really going to adjudicate every single little detail. I think a lot of the nitpicking is actually immaterial. The big thing they're basically saying is that we promoted this project because we ran an analysis and we thought it was a worthy project. Right. And that we thought with this worthy project, there was also an opportunity to fundraise for the worthy work we are doing in the Metropolitan uh, Policy Program. And it was the union of those two things here that we wouldn't have done this for. I think this is really what they're saying. We would not have done this for a project that we didn't think was worthy. You couldn't have had a a developer trying to make Manhattan a low-density suburban neighborhood and just pay Brookings enough money to support that. Right. That they were only going to enter into this higher level relationship in a place that fit with the ideals of their program and was analytically sound. I think that can be true. Actually, I think it probably is true. And I don't find it particularly exculpatory. I think the facts are what they are. But when when I think about so so I I once upon a time uh you know, worked at a, a think tank. I was working at, at Think Progress, and this was not what like our branch of the program worked. Um, but what I can tell you, like from the inside, from talking to other people who were working at Center for American Progress there, was that like the big problem that everybody would face on a daily basis was that they had lots of good ideas that they really believed in, and they didn't have money to do work on all of those good ideas. And in an ideal world, money would just like rain down from the heavens and like lots of smart people with earnest ideas about how to improve American public policy could go write stuff on that stuff things. And I, I kind of wish billionaires would just sort of write no strings attached checks to, to smart people to go do things. To Vox.com specifically. Well, sure, to whomever. Um, you know, but they don't, right? So people wind up in this need to do this kind of money hustle and like see who they can gin up cash from and and for what. And I think that the problem that is highlighted in this New York Times story is very real, which is to say that like these these you would like to think that think tanks, particularly ones like Brookings that are kind of positioned to be non-ideological and and bipartisan and promoting a kind of view from nowhere. You would like to think that like the top 10 things on their agenda are their 10 best ideas when the reality is they're the 10 ideas that they could get the most money for. That is a really bad – I, I want to say a huge, like genuinely devastating problem for the United States of America – I'm not sure that it is like an ethical problem for Brookings. OK, officials. so this is super important. So I want to – can we just put a pin in the idea of Gulf state money for a minute? Because yeah. I want to come back to this because yeah. you were tweeting about this morning. I think it connects. All right. This is what I meant when I said at the outset of this conversation that we are going to need to talk about the strong and weak forms of corruption. Everything you're saying is true. Uh, it is the case that the projects think tanks focus on are the projects they can raise money for. 
Now there there are different ways that think tanks get funded. Some of them some of them uh, are lucky to have a gigantic bequest from somebody who died a long time ago, and they can do whatever they want with the money. Dead people are the best donors. <laughs> But a lot of them have to go out and, as you say, do the money hustle. And even some that, and even some that have a mix of foundation funding and, and have to do the money hustle. Okay. So what the money hustle will do is it might say that you would really like to be doing a project on breaking up big banks because you're someone who you just really believe that the way to make the financial system safer is to break up the big banks. But the thing that you can raise $2 million for is a smart cities project. Because such and such donor um, wants to be Walmart, wants to be associated with smart, forward-thinking urban policy. And so what you end up doing is a smart cities project, and it's a good project. It is ethically done. But here, the weak form of the corruption is that rather than having conversation-driving research on breaking up the big banks, what we have is – also good, also conversation, but much less controversial research on how to improve mixed-use uh, construction. Okay. Brookings, I think, went further. And I, I do wish I had come in with a, a slightly itemized list of, of things from the piece. But what they were doing was going to the donor and saying, if you give us this money, we will name one of your people a senior fellow. So this person who had a Brookings title after his name got it by buying it. Right. And they were saying, if you give us this much money, we'll put this project on a list of the 10 most innovative urban policy projects you know, in America or some – I forget how many were on the list, but some, some number. And that – look, like we deal with this in journalism all the time, uh, going all the way back to Matt, you're in my days at the American Prospect where the way the magazine was financed was we would have these big special reports from – that were funded by foundations and it would be, you know, the work and family issue and we'd all be doing work and family journalism. But what you didn't get to do when you bought a special report was like a, like write my piece for me or like appear in the piece or I didn't say to you, you'll get this kind of coverage. At Vox, we have editorial sponsorships where um, some advertiser want to be next to a particular kind of coverage. Maybe they want to be near personal finance coverage. And if it aligns with coverage we're already doing, we'll say sure. But we wouldn't say – Okay, your VP can now be called a Vox.com contributing editor and can write articles on the website and use our name to to, to gin up credibility. And that seems to me to be the, the difference Brooking the, – the, the bridge Brookings crossed. Now, to your point, how much worse is that in terms of the effect on the world? It actually probably didn't change anything very much. Right. Um, but it is a lot sleazier. Although coming from a baseline, as you say, that is already pretty bad. So I, I, I mean, I do think that the the sort of title laundering aspect of this was to me kind of the the worst yeah. element of it, right? That that, that and, was a smoking gun, in and my and view. this was where. I, I I feel bad because I don't want to be singling American Enterprise Institute out as like uniquely pernicious, but the story that was focused on them was more focused on this particular point where. An AEI guy was also a consultant and at, it, with his consultant hat on, he was just getting paid to do work for one of the telecom companies. But he was publishing that work as an American Enterprise Institute fellow and this is not unique by any means to, to AEI, right? That if you look at pretty much all of the, the think tanks in, in D.C., they have, you know, a certain number of people who, who work for them who are like there in the office every day doing stuff. Um, they're often on targeted earmarked grant programs. And, you know, there may be some problems with that, but like they're they're doing their jobs every day. But then there tends to be a kind of floating universe of like fellows and dignitaries and non-resident whomevers where – it's not like super clear to anybody what that title means. Um, and those people necessarily like have other jobs doing other things. Um, and you can get into some real conflicts there, particularly when you have a fairly common arrangement where you'll have a former politician who is a partner at like a law firm or a consulting company or a lobbying firm, but he's also like a non-resident fellow at various think tanks and he's putting his name on some think tank work products that probably he didn't like really, really write but is like a co-signatory to. And it's totally unclear 
to the audience right. in that case. Like who is saying what and on behalf of whom and like why. Um, this AI case, um, it, it particularly – struck me because the, uh, the, the the guy was, uh, in addition to an AEI fellow, he's a consultant with a, a company called NERA, National Economic Research Associates, which, um, as it happens, my grandfather was the, the founder of. Um, my God, the conspiracy and I, runs so deep. Yeah. I, well, and so... Uh, what my one of my uncles uh, works there now as a as a partner in in their DC office, um, and it, it always struck me the the economic economists doing consulting work um, more typically just in the academic universe. So it'll be like you'll be a such and such professor, you know, at at Harvard and MIT at at Stanford, but you'll also do work for corporate clients, and then you'll also publish academic research, and presumably your academic research. And your work for corporate clients are going to be on related subjects because you're only an expert on so many things. And, you know, you're supposed to disclose in your academic papers, like, who has funded that research. But as, you know, well-paid, prestigious economists could tell you more than anybody, like, money doesn't work like that. Right. There's not, like, a special box that's like, aha, this research is completely segregated from my for-profit consulting work. There's just people who are giving you money and there's papers you're publishing. And it's very, I think it legitimately undermines people's trust in expertise when people um, want to present themselves as whether they're think tank scholars or, or academics, they want to present themselves as kind of providing a voice of authority from on high, but then they also want to make money doing client-side work. I think that, you know, in any individual case, I'm sure everybody's conscience is clear that they, you know, have some reason why it's fine. But th there are real reasons why I think people have come to doubt that this kind of uh, expert voice is really all that neutral. And I do think that this kind of dual-hatted stuff, as it compounds and it becomes more and more the norm in certain professions, has a really corrosive impact on people. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. And now I want to go back to the, the weak form of corruption because I think this is important and it's hard because the weak form of corruption I actually think is the worst one and that is both more pervasive and more important for the public discourse. So the kinds of ills we've been talking about here, if you think about what their output is, the output of the title laundering, the output of the, you know, getting a project you already like, but now you get more money for it, so you pump it a little bit more. It's bad on the margin. It reduces public faith in think tanks and expertise. It can lead to research that probably, frankly, isn't that good because you've incentive to get it out in a particular way or maybe you kill research that says something your client doesn't like, whatever. It's, it's bad. I'm not taken away from that. But the weak form where you have think tanks that are agglomerations of funded projects based on what funders are interested in associating with 
has, I think, a much more pervasive place in public discourse. So this morning, Matt, you tweeted that a difference between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama is that Barack Obama is very, and the Obama administration, is very skeptical of the Gulf states. And Clinton is less so, it appears. And you said that you're not exactly sure what that amounts to. And I think that's correct. I'm not exactly sure what that skepticism amounts to either. But if you – and you, you've had these conversations too. If you talk with Obama administration people about this, among the things that they complain about in foreign policy is that the Gulf states fund a lot of foreign policy think tanking in Washington, D.C. And that their particular interests are – Maybe not aligned with those of the United States of America, but that they have had a real influence on pushing the stance of the American foreign policy community towards a hawkish, anti-Iranian, intervention-focused space. And has I think functionally, the argument is – has made America more of a player in a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think that's the right. the actual argument being made. You would understand this better than I do, but 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 this is a place where the White House, which is a pretty powerful place for setting the agenda, they really believe that something hamstringing their foreign policy is this kind of soft corruption in which Gulf states are spending tons of money on the D.C. foreign policy think tank community and as such have created a world where when you see the, those experts are always on TV and are creating a drumbeat for conflicts that those experts probably do believe in. But that if the way to get a job in foreign policy think tankery wasn't to be kind of softly on the side of Saudi Arabia versus Iran, then the D.C. foreign policy conversation and the pressure on the administration and, and ultimately America's foreign policy might be different. Well, and, and here, I mean, I, I actually don't think you need to posit any kind of corruption at all, right? It's a simple question of in the press, we need like experts. We, we need people who are genuinely well-informed about the Middle East to speak to our reporters and contribute to our op-ed pages and appear on our podcasts, appear on our cable television shows. Um, it is expensive to develop genuine expertise on foreign countries. Um, and so if you have, if, if Brookings and CSIS have the budget to give people like the time to develop that expertise and the time to speak to reporters and appear on CNN and talk to backbench members of Congress about what's going on, like that is genuine expertise. But if there's nobody on the other side, like contributing that, it just completely drowns out, right? And that is, I think that the the complaint that the White House has on this, that, you know, it's not that the experts are like pretending to agree with, with the Saudi viewpoint. It's that people who agree with the Saudi viewpoint have the resources to become experts who show up in the media and are influential in politics. Other people are just kind of wandering around or, you know, don't think about it that much. Don't there's there's just no job to be had as like an advocate of a more of American disengagement from the Middle East who can show up at the drop of a hat in a television studio and talk about the latest crisis in Syria. Um, and, and you know, and I, to, to me, I mean, we're journalists, so maybe my own bias is, is in this way. But but this is how the whole question of like money and think tankery to me becomes really problematic, that a lot of the times an issue will pop up. I, I had this frustration around Trans-Pacific Partnership. Y you would really like to <laughs> talk to somebody who seems like independent and credible about this issue. And there isn't anybody who is like independent and credible on the issue because everyone is working for someone. It's not that they're all corrupt or, or even that like corruption is dominating the system. There's people on both sides of it, but there's like nobody who you can say absolutely, right, doesn't have some kind of agenda behind them. And, and you had that with, with network neutrality where you had like the think tanks that are funded by Google and Netflix and you had the think tanks that are funded by the telecom companies and the think tanks that are funded by Google and Netflix said net neutrality is great. The ones funded by telecom companies said net neutrality is well, terrible. And I'm sure the people honestly sorted themselves. It's not like they're taking bribes. But you would like to be able to say as a journalist, I spoke to someone who came to this in a completely disinterested way. And it's hard. So I, that, this is a problem that 
I'm not less worried about, but I am maybe more cynical about than you are. I don't think that there is such a thing as the truly disinterested trade policy expert or whatever, or network neutrality expert. Because let me let me give a counter example here. Uh, public citizen. Right. Uh, I do not know who funds them, if anyone. I, I have mm-hmm. no idea how their finances work. They are very anti-TPP. And they're a place stocked with folks who are very, very skeptical of trade agreements. I take what they say like quite seriously, actually. I think they're very smart and informed on these issues. But I don't think that they are like less, quote unquote, biased any more than I am unbiased on these issues. Like the reason people work on things and, and get very invested in them is because they're interested. I, I think the problem is share of voice. I, I'm not looking for the disinterested expert because, again, I'm a little skeptical. There's, I, I really like we all bring our biases to everything. But what I am concerned about is the degree to which, and I think TPP is a good example, where clearly the predominant amount of money was on one side of that debate. Right. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of issues. There are a lot of issues. We're, we're really talking here, I think, quite a bit about issues where it's clear the money is on one side of the debate. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of issues where the problem is the money isn't on no side of the debate. Yes. The money is completely uninterested in the issue. Like nobody stands to make a lot from it. Nobody hates it too much. It is important, but it isn't funded. Um, uh, and, and it's funny cause I'm trying to come up with an example of this that, but because well, it's so, like hard so to here's, come up with this exact reason. Right? So the thing I am interested in, right, is, um, city bus operations. There you go. Which are not done very well in the United States, as I understand it. But there is no prominent DC policy organization that has been written a check by anybody to like write, make like cool PDFs and do good presentations and write shop op-eds about like how to design good bus networks, how to do optimal bus spacing. You know, these are like a legitimate policy question. Every city in America runs a bus system. Uh, It's an important transportation modality. But like it hasn't been the case that any eccentric billionaires have wanted to get behind this. um, And it's just not like a hot button issue. So it's, it's like absent. I, I think it's interesting. I sometimes write about it and like, I wish there was more, but by contrast, there's a bajillion people talking about ways to optimize uh, public schools. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's not even necessarily because like some corporate interests got into it, but like it's become a cool topic that a lot of people give money to. And there's in that case, right, there's a lot of money on both sides. Well, let me let me give a different version yeah. of this. The amount of money there is to produce papers on the estate tax, right. I think far exceeds the estate tax's relative importance in American public policy. I, I, I think there's almost more good information about the estate tax than there's about America's relationship with Japan. Right. And I just think the relationship with Japan is more important. Right. Speaking of experts and the role they have in public policy, didn't Hillary Clinton announce her transition team this week? Oh, yes, she did. Excellent pivot. Thank Excellent you. pivot. Pivot Thank to you. the general election. Um, you can't see it, but I'm brushing dirt yeah, off my so shoulder. Yeah, so it occurred to me in the course of being edited on this subject that many people are not aware of necessarily what a transition team is. Um, so it's worth uh, saying well, that – I-, I can see your – pulling something up. So I will vamp for a second. Yeah, go for and, it. and I will note that I, I do have a concern about this election, that we're just sitting around talking about Donald Trump all the time, even though we know from the polling that Hillary Clinton is pretty likely to be the the next president, not a lock by any means. We have debates and all. And apparently Donald Trump just brought in Breitbart to run his campaign, but or the, the publisher of Breitbart or something. Uh, Andrew Breitbart himself is dead, so it's probably not running uh, Donald Trump's campaign. But I do have this like kind of sinking feeling, and, and I'm trying to think about how to address it in our coverage, that we're going to wake up you know, in November, and Hillary will be the next president. And we've devoted so little time to actually discussing her reams of policy papers. And so I want to I be the solution. I want to talk about her transition team. Right. So you know, a, a transition team deals with the fact that the American government is really enormous and really, really complicated. And you need to actually start working before Election Day on what is the president-elect going to do in the sort of lame duck two months plus 
January and February. And it's a bit of an odd situation because you can't make a decision like who's going to be Secretary of Defense until the president-elect can really spend a lot of time thinking about it. And Hillary Clinton is not going to sit through a lot of meetings about that this summer because she's trying to win the election. Um, So the closest she can come is she goes through a couple meetings about who she wants to be on the team that is going to present her with the options in November and December. And and it's very important because you have to make a lot of choices relatively quickly. So how those choices are structured, uh, you know, makes a big difference. Mm -hmm. So like when – After Obama won in in 2008, he was sort of more or less presented with you could make Larry Summers the Treasury Secretary or you could make Tim Geithner the Treasury Secretary. There wasn't like – obviously, Obama's not like a helpless child. He could have said, (laughs) no, 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 give me a much longer list. But like he had set out a team to give him a couple choices. They gave him a couple options and he picked one. And that's just how most of it is going to go. Right. An interesting uh, note about Clinton is that unlike Obama, who did not know reams of people who might plausibly be Treasury Secretary, she really will come in knowing the constellation of Democratic Party. I, I just think it's interesting the way she'll be a much more informed participant in that process yes. just H- by virtue of how long she's been around. This Hillary system. Clinton has personally met, I think, every single person in American <laughs> politics because um, she's been around for a much, much, much longer time. Uh, so, But at any rate, so she, she announced a team and sort of in keeping with that, her initial sketch transition team is actually quite big. Um, It's chaired by Ken Salazar, who um, was Interior Secretary in in the Obama administration, was a senator from Colorado at a time when Colorado was considered a a red state. Um, I've seen this Salazar pick uh, complained about by a lot of uh, people on on the left. Um, But I I think you should understand it primarily as like um, a signal to Latinos. Uh, there was a big kind of push. Go, let's go through the list yeah. because I want to talk about the Salazar pick, but I think what I want to say will make more sense once we've run through yeah, the, yeah, sort yeah. of the other key players. Right. And so then you have uh, Jennifer Granholm, former governor of Michigan. She's been sort of floating around in the universe forever as like she might do something someday. And now I guess she will. Um, <laughs> Neera Tandon, uh, president of the uh, Center for American Progress, I believe former guest on the Ezra Klein on the Ezra show. the Ezra Klein show. You can go listen um, to it. Uh, I, I used to work for uh, Maggie Williams uh, as a kind of an old school. Hillary Land person. Uh, she was chief of staff when Hillary was first lady. She was the first chief of staff at the Clinton Foundation. Um, Tom Donilon was national security advisor briefly in the Obama administration. He, I guess, is just in charge of the national security transition. Uh, then the other people, Anne O'Leary, uh, Hillary's old legislative director, Ed Meyer was a uh, policy guy at the State Department, but currently does a, a sort of early childhood nonprofit. And Heather Boucher, chief economist for Washington Center for Equitable Growth, but is really a specialist in um, family policy, work-life balance issues. So it's like those three people at the end of the list who are not well-known politicians, um, it tends to be the least well-known people on a commission are the people who do the actual work. Um not sure that will be a lot of the people on this list, I think, are are going to be insofar as the actual work is proposing people like Neera Tandon, who runs a think tank that is broadly considered to be a holding pen for future Clinton administration appointees. I think we'll have active. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 everybody will. Uh, I'm just saying, particularly as you move down from Ken Salazar, <laughs> you have a lot of people here who are focused on early childhood and Yes. Women yeah, in the that workforce is the big kind of there. issues. That is a – granting that like your transition team has to have someone involved with national security, uh-huh. right? It's like almost everything else is in that kind of specialization, which is interesting to me because that has not been the focus of the 2016 campaign, but has very much been the focus of Hillary Clinton's entire career in politics. Mm-hmm. This is like the touchstone to which she goes back time and again and again and seems to be going back to again. That is probably – that's the more important point we should talk about. But I am fascinated by the Ken Salazar's chair pick Mm -hmm. just because I don't really understand it. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of names on that list that I was expecting to be on this team and sort of expecting one of them to chair it. Now, maybe I was expecting someone like Podesta to chair it, though. I guess the chairman of the campaign doesn't typically chair the transition team. But Ken Salazar is not an – he's not like an – 
an elder of Democratic Party politics and part of the Democratic Party policymaking yes. such that you hear him like, yeah, OK, that guy knows everybody, nor is he a very well-known close confidant of Hillary Clinton's in the way that an, uh, uh, Anne O'Leary was, right. was on there. Yeah, uh, in the way that Anne O'Leary is or Maggie Williams is. Nor is Salazar's particular focuses. He he was head of Department of Interior, like the core of Hillary Clinton's agenda. I mean, I agree that you can do a sort of like squint. You're like, oh, it's a message to Latinos, but this isn't really where you send that message. I mean, who well, chooses to be? <laughs> Maybe you're right. Um, so I just found that interesting. I would I would love to know, and this is something that. Recognize. I should not just be maybe speculating on air. This came out yesterday. I was traveling. I haven't had time to report on it. But I am interested by that decision. I don't really understand why Ken Salazar is in that position. Right. I mean, if you look at the other people who are on this list, right, if 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 Neera Tandon was chair of the transition, you would say, well, Neera's predecessor as the president of CAP was the chair of Obama's transition. Right. right? And, and so that's currently like, the chair of Hillary Clinton's campaign. Right. And, and so that that's a very logical job, right? Because to the extent that Center for American Progress is understood as like a holding pen for senior Democrats who are out of office, having the person who runs that run a staffing operation is like super duper logical. Plus, like Clinton and Tandon are close and yeah, worked Tandon together for, for many, many director. years. Um, yeah. And then again, Maggie Williams and O'Leary are both people who and have run smaller shops for Hillary Clinton. So now that she's president, like, why wouldn't Maggie Williams do? Right. right. That would make perfect sense. Ken Salazar is a little bit out of left field in those terms. He has never worked for Hillary Clinton. He does not oversee any large group of people. He um, was a senator for a little while, was a cabinet secretary for a little while. Now, I guess he's not officially a lobbyist, but he's like a partner at one of these law firms that's really a lobbyist. Offers strategic firm. guidance. Yeah, it's a consulting about something, <laughs> something, something. Um, it, it, and I should I should note because I did not note this in the article, and people complained to me about it. He there is um anti fracking ballot initiative and, and stuff activism in Colorado, and he has been an opponent of those anti fracking initiatives, uh, which um you know comes to people's mind because this was a flashpoint uh, in the campaign between Clinton and Sanders. Um, so it, I don't think it would send. I don't think this is like a pick that's like about drilling for natural gas. Um, but, it, you know, to the extent that people had the impression that Hillary Clinton is for a Democrat, like relatively friendly to, you know, natural gas interests, probably banks, rich people, blah, 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 blah. Like Ken Salazar is also that kind of Democrat. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think two things are true about this list. One is that, as you say, if you are – if you're really searching in it for what is the Hillary Clinton administration going to be interested in, obsessed with, focused on that is different than the Obama administration or just standard Democratic Party policymaking, I think you've nailed it. It's clearly – Childhood equity issues. It's clearly work and family balance, um, and and this is why in which I think that Hillary Clinton's perspective, uh, both her interests. I mean, she's usually focused on these issues and always has been. Worked for the Children's Defense Fund, but also is a woman, is a mother, has had to to make these balancing decisions. I think is a way in which she will be just a little bit materially different in her priority list than previous inhabitants of the Oval Office. Uh, the other message is just a, a slightly unusual one at the top, uh, which is that they've picked someone who it's – you can read a lot of things into them, but none of them make a ton of sense. Now, maybe – you know, and this I think is true with the Tim Kaine pick too. Tim Kaine was not a longtime Clinton crony either. And in fact, he was one of Barack Obama's earliest endorsers in 2008. Maybe over the last couple of years, Clinton has really – like met Ken Salazar and just really, really, really been impressed by him and wanted a place to put him. And this is a way of not laundering him, but um, kind of preparing him for a more senior job in her administration, right? right? She wants him at a high place, but you know, you got to make that jump somehow. Uh, it, it is an interesting fact about the Clintons that I will note. There is often a lot of talk about Clinton land. Mm -hmm. and this is particularly true with Hillary Clinton. There are these longtime folks who have orbited her for many years. But she really does pick up new ones along the way. There, there are, are people and there are politicians 
who they have a staff that is the staff they had had for a very, very, very long time. And that group gains experience together. They age together. You know, but when you're, you know, you're looking at them over a, a time lapse of 15, 20 years and the key people in the key positions are the same people. That's actually not true with Clinton. She really does absorb new – Jake Sullivan, who's really her right. top policy advisor, is someone she just met a couple of years ago. Uh, John Podesta is somebody she clashed with in the Clinton administration later, obviously being closer with. Uh, a lot of the people on the campaign are not the people from the 08 campaign. And and here too, it's possible that part of the Salazar message, much like part of the Kane message, is that this isn't just Clinton land that you remember from the 90s, that there's a lot of new people who've impressed them in the last 10 years. It is a really actually noteworthy thing about Clinton because you look at Barack Obama, right, who when he becomes president, he simply does not have enough longtime friends and associates to run the American government. Like you just couldn't do it. Um, so it, his administration is staffed with like old pros and like a sprinkling of Obama loyalists like hither and yon. And you look eight years later and it's like that sprinkling of Obama loyalists is like still there, right? right. They're actually more prominent, right? So like Dennis McDonough would not have been qualified to be chief of staff at the beginning of Obama's administration. Um but he's probably like the guy who Obama would have liked to have been chief of staff all along. And like now he is, right? Because he, he he developed like more more seasoning and, and just more experience, did a wider range of things. And and those people sort of keep being drawn like into the core and elevated. Um, Clinton has this much longer, much wider network, but actually keeps bringing more and more people into it and to an extent sidelining uh, older people. It's an interesting aspect of her. And it means that it's... You know, it's hard to know, right? I mean, Tim Kaine is – he's going to be vice president in her administration. He is not someone who five years ago, ten years ago, you would have said is like a close ally of Hillary Clinton. I guess he is now. Um, and, it, you know, it, it means you don't you don't really know what's going to go on with, with some of this stuff. I, I do think that focus on, on children, working parents, things like that, it, it underscores some of the clash in perspectives of Hillary Clinton that, that you see that – you know, one reaction I, I sort of had – I saw some people have to this list was um, I can't believe people think she's not a real progressive. Like look at this list of advocates for children and working mothers and, and economically hard-hit families. And then other people look at the exact same list and like, holy crap, what a bunch of neoliberal corporate shills. Um, and it's because helping low-income people with their problems in life – and taking big business down a peg or two are like both progressive left-wing things to do, but they have not that close a relationship with one another. Well, this is a problem, I think, in general in the way we talk about liberal and conservative, right. where we talk about it as a binary, but policy is multidimensional. So something that I think is true – there's a, a joke I've heard from Hillary Clinton people over the, the year – that I'm old enough to remember when the problem with Hillary Clinton was she was a radical socialist. Right. Right. Because in the early 90s, the reason Hillary Clinton was controversial was she was considered to be this role-busting, you know, I'm not going to stay home and bake cookies, feminist right. radical. And then I think since a lot of voters today, um, what they remember is a Hillary Clinton of – 2000 to 2008, roughly, which is a Hillary Clinton defined by a fight over foreign policy. And Hillary Clinton, I think, I think it is actually the case that Clinton is somewhat more liberal than Barack Obama on social policy uh, in, in terms of, you know, how she would design, say, a healthcare program and somewhat more hawkish than him on foreign policy and different Things are salient to different times. And so people's impression that Hillary Clinton is a pretty moderate Democrat comes somewhat from being uh, – having a lot of experience with her on the Iraq war primarily. Right. But the people who thought Hillary Clinton was sort of a like a social engineering radical, you know, the, the Hillary Clinton of it takes a village are the people who have a lot of experience in the idea that she, like, she wants to completely refashion society to work better for children. <laughs> right. Well, and, you know, I think there's, a, there's an old saying about like uh, – I forget who it was, but it said, you know, my mission is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Right. Um, but those it's are actually— journalism idea. Yeah. But, I mean, I think you see it in politics, too. But but those are actually two different things, right? Um, right. And, and I think you, you really see if you look at something like um, Tony Blair's administration in the UK where you can't make— where there's no sort of legislative constraints, right? Um, they cut child poverty in half there. 
um, they, they did like enormous amounts under Blair to comfort the afflicted. Uh, what they did not do was afflict the comfortable. Um, they had some tax increases, but, you know, there was the deregulation of finance and, and you know, all, all that kind of stuff, right? And depending on what you happen to care about more, you can just have a different look at what that all amounts to. You can make the argument, I certainly know people who make the argument, that there's a super duper duper intimate linkage between Wall Street regulation and the economic well-being of low-wage workers. Um, but that has never really added up to me. At I least mean, outside the context of a financial crisis. Yes, right, right. But I mean, it just sort of in in general sense, right, um, New York State is both a place with lots and lots of rich bankers and also a relatively generous TANF system, uh, whereas like Alabama has neither of those things. Um, I think poor people are clearly better off in New York, notwithstanding the fact that rich people are also better off. It's just a richer place where there's more money for everyone. Um, and, you know, but I, I think that in addition to foreign policy, the legacy of the financial crisis, the fights around the Dodd-Frank bill, um, Bernie Sanders's really like all of the above progressive agenda, you know, ha have left a lot of people, particularly media people who, um, you know, can be more interested in the sort of big clash of ideas than in the concrete benefits of social welfare programs, place a lot of emphasis on this kind of um, afflicting the comfortable aspect of things. Whereas Clinton, her reputation as a socialist radical was always about the idea that she was going to like hand out too much money to people, not that she was going to uh, nationalize industry. And specifically on the work and family stuff, that something I think is there are different ways to think about what liberals and what conservatives want to do in the economy. One thing is they want to do cash transfers, which people is, – is a controversial thing to do, but is very normalized as a thing to do. Right. And Clinton, for a lot of different reasons, has I think long been suspected to believe that she doesn't just want to do cash transfers. She wants to change quite a few structures in how the economy is built. Yeah, yeah. Because she thinks things don't work for mothers, don't work for children. You know, that's some of the sub-theme of things like It Takes a Village. The, the, the idea that and, – and it's also the sub-theme of was I supposed to stay home and, and bake cookies all day? That, there, right. that there's an argument that what we need to do is not just increase food stamps but actually rethink some sort of fundamental underpinnings of – what workers are allowed to do, how corporations are organized. And you actually see this in another place right now. If you talk to the Clinton campaign and try to like parse through what are they – what is she interested in economics that is a little bit different than – what is a focus for her that is different than Obama? She's become very taken with this idea that a major problem in capitalism is uh, a short-termism. It's like a, a overly aggressive focus on short-term profits or in quarterly reports at the extent of long-term investments and is trying to now come up with a bunch of ideas to, to mitigate that. You've written good things. I'm a little bit unconvinced by the centrality of this problem. But it's, again, a place where she seems to be very interested in ideas that maybe structurally the economy is not well designed as opposed to simply like, hey, we need to take some money from rich people and give some of that money to poor people. Well, speaking about the economy. Ooh, that's a uh, – eh. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so there, there was a new uh, – people have been talking for a year now and it's – boring, but about Donald Trump and why people are voting for, for, for Donald Trump and to what extent does Donald Trump's populist appeal derive from economic struggles uh, versus um, I don't know what um, it was. He was last night talking about how you need to elect him president to counter a massive crime wave that does not appear to be actually happening. And it was it was Gallup, right, came out with so a researcher at Gallup. A researcher at Gallup did um, a, a sort of a very comprehensive kind of uh, stat, you know, not just like a simple, I poll a thousand people, um, but but a big data set who are More the Trump supporters. More than 80,000. So what Gallup's been doing is they have this weekly, I think it's weekly, maybe it's actually daily, poll looking at Trump favorability. Mm -hmm. And they've, in the way they're running this poll, they've also gathered geographic data. 
And so what this guy basically did was took, I don't know, some I don't fully understand what happened here, but something like 90-some thousand instances of polling and was able to clean that up into something like 85,000 roughly actual observations of this person in this place feels this way about Trump. Right. And so what they find is that Trump supporters are more likely to live in economically depressed places, but to not be themselves particularly low income. Um, and so that they tend to be actually high income relative to their neighbors, sort of normal, I think, on average. Um, and, and then they also find that um, having more contact with immigrants makes you less likely to be a to be a Trump supporter, uh, that living in a very white community makes you more likely to be a to be a Trump supporter. Um, so like Trump's speech exposure to trade and immig- exposure to trade does not appear to have any real effect on. On being a Trump supporter. Right. That, that was one of, I thought, one of the very interesting findings of this, that these are not people who live in towns devastated by NAFTA. Like, that's actually not the economic observation. Right, right, right. Which is, you know, important because you've seen a lot of reporting, um, n- newspaper reporting that that goes about this in the uh, methodologically opposite way, which is you find a town that you know has been devastated right, yes. <laughs> by competition from That's China. A great point. You send a journalist there, you find some Trump supporters, and then you're like, aha, people are supporting <laughs> Trump. Um, but so like I happen to know a Trump supporter who's a real estate developer in Manhattan because I grew up in Manhattan. So that's where I know a lot of people. Um, it would obviously be backwards to say that the typical Trump supporter, you could even spin it out. You'd be like, well, Donald Trump is a real estate right, developer yeah. from Manhattan. So of course Manhattan really, but like that has nothing to do with it. So Gallup did what really is hard for journalists to do, but that researchers can do, which is actually look at the whole universe of Trump supporters and see where are they typically, rather than uh, kind of looking uh, under the under the lamppost. Um, and so you see, actually, Trump is himself very interested in staging large rallies uh, where he'll get a lot of attendance, and he seems very good at it. And and. His rally selection site are, I think, telling on on this regard. Like last night, he had a big one in Wisconsin, and he talked a lot about the unrest in Milwaukee. Um, But he wasn't speaking in Milwaukee. He was speaking in an exurb over an hour outside Milwaukee in an overwhelmingly white community that was not like an old Rust Belt town, right? It's typically – it would have been a rural area a generation or two ago. It's now, you know, full of subdivisions and stores and just like regular people. Um, and, and he gave a speech there. When he came to Maine uh, wh- while I was on vacation, he did not go to like Lewiston or uh, Callis or another like shuttered mill town. He went to Portland, which is the biggest. It's a growing city. There's a lot of uh, credit card back office processing happening there. Like it, it's a fine, you know, nice town. It's just it's full of white people, um, you know, even by Maine standards. Um, <laughs> no, not really. All, all places. In the um, you know, Trump, uh, then he went to Connecticut, right? He went to Fairfield County, Connecticut. Oh, you've really been watching his, um, his travel schedule. You know, which really pissed off Republican consultants because he's obviously not going to win Connecticut. Uh, but again, it's like a totally regular place, just like sort of far from New York, uh, full of white people. He had a big rally, you know, I don't know, just like a lot of people like Donald Trump. So I think the the context in which this study emerges is there is a ongoing debate. It's a debate in which Matt likes to play a sort of trolling presence about (laughs) whether Trump's supporters are generated by – whether Trump supporters are motivated by economic anxiety, uh, whether these are people who have been left behind by the economy. Or whether they are motivated by, I think, what researchers would call racial resentment. Right. And um, our, our friend, our mutual friend, Brian Boitler, likes to make fun of this on Twitter and, and replace, replace the words uh, economic anxiety with racial resentment. But um, what I, I think what this study is doing is saying in a, in a basic sort of rigorous way, if you just began with the idea Donald Trump supporters are motivated by economic anxiety – which predictions will you make? 
Trump's pattern of support just does not fit those predictions. Yeah. I mean, that to me is the real thing. We can argue a bit about what it does show because I don't think the study actually shows what it is. It, it is suggestive in terms of what it is, but doesn't show what it is. But nobody would have said that, OK, if Trump's support is motivated by economic anxiety, then what we are going to find is Trump supporters are richer than average, are richer than their neighbors, are not living in places devastated by trade, not living in places particularly exposed to immigration. But there is some evidence in the areas in which they live that white mortality and intergenerational mobility is slightly lower than average. Like that's just not the that, – that isn't how you would have proved the hypothesis. Well, and, and, and I do think it's it's worth trying to be, be clear what, what I'm saying, what this study is saying because I don't want to be taken as saying that Donald Trump supporters – are not upset about economic conditions right, yes. or that Many no Donald Trump supporters are suffering from economic problems. What I'm saying, what I think this Gallup study shows very clearly is that in a statistical sense, there is no correlation, particular correlation between the severity of an individual's economic circumstances and an individual's tendency to support Donald Trump, right? I mean, so like I bet Donald Trump supporters love French fries. Right. right. Uh, like, but Hillary Clinton supporters also love French fries. And uh, it, it's possibly even true that like frou-frou health nuts are disproportionately likely to support Hillary. I mean, I bet that even is true. But like, it's not an important driver of, of the difference between the two of them. And and that's what you're seeing here with the, with this Trump stuff. Trump supporters are not unusually poor. They're not unusually concentrated in communities that have been hurt by trade with China. Um there are many Trump supporters in communities that have been hurt by trade with China, but it's not it's not about that in any clear way. And and to be uh, I think super clear about it, Trump would be losing the election much more devastatingly if it was driven by that. I mean, you can look at these like David Autor's big China trade paper, this China shock literature, and the China trade impact was really really big, but like quite geographically limited, right? I mean, a political movement that existed of furniture manufacturing towns in North Carolina and Georgia plus auto parts makers in Ohio and Michigan would just not get anywhere, right. like at all, right? Like Donald Trump won all these primaries. He, he won the primary in New Jersey. He, he, uh, he won the primary in Nevada. The Nevada gaming industry has clearly not been devastated by trade with China. And I think people know that, right? P people on some level do know these things, but if kind of like, because they want to talk about big issues in economic policy, have almost like talk themselves out so, of but this is the common sense view that not that many people work in factories that compete with China. I think that point about what people are talking themselves into is really important here. You and I have been having this discussion, I think, on and off for a couple of weeks now. There is a move in journalism currently, and, and I read it all the time, and, and always people frame it as if they are the first to say this thing. <laughs> but it's always... We need to take the legitimate grievances of Trump supporters seriously. And then a bunch of other people are like, yeah, we do need to take the legitimate – like as if everybody else is saying, fuck them. Like nobody needs to take their right. grievances seriously. But the people doing that are never taking the legitimate grievances of Trump supporters seriously. This is what – real. it's a real annoying thing to me. What is going on is that – the media really loathes Donald Trump. It really does. Like he – I've written a lot about this now. You can find it on Vox.com. But there's a real thing happening where Trump is – like at this point, the media is like not even pretending, which they usually at least will try to pretend. But they do want to cover Trumpism and Trump supporters sympathetically, empathically. And that is leading to a sort of reinvention of Trumpism, like a, re a creation of a sanitized Trumpism that they can cover positively. The press does not have a very strong ideology around trade deals. Just most members of the political press do not care. And so they're perfectly happy to say these Rust Belt communities in Michigan have a legitimate economic, you know, and, and so on. The press does have very strong pro-tolerance, pro-diversity, pro-pluralism cosmopolitan values. And so they will not positively cover the idea that there are people out there who their grievance is white privilege is declining, 
Their grievance is they look around and the country is changing. A majority of infants under three are non-white now. They will not cover positively the idea that some people just don't think there should be more immigrants in this country, and it's not really about economics. Maybe not even because they hate immigrants. They just don't think it. Like that's just like it's not something they want. They don't want to cover positively the idea that some folks just look across the sea and they say that people who are not like us should have a very, very, very low weight in the moral calculus of our democracy. And as such, any chance that Muslims coming to America could import terrorism is too much of a chance and we should just shut that down. We either just have a travel ban. I think that Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters do have real grievances. I think it is the job of the president to take them seriously. But I think that means saying that when folks are rallying to a guy who says build a wall and Muslim travel ban, that this is not just a cry for a better trade policy and more tax cuts, that you actually have to take that kind of upset as a real form of upset. And then you can decide, like, do you want to take it seriously in the sense of being sympathetic to it? Do you want to do something about it? Do you want to say, no, these are bad opinions and I'm going to fight them? These are all legitimate choices to make. But I I, I think that what this study is saying to some degree, if you read it clearly, is that Trump support is not about economic anxiety. It is powered at least to some degree by racial segregation in how communities are formed. So it's easier for people who can other immigrants and other non-white members of, of the American community to support Trump because they have just different views on this. There's a lot of theory the paper goes into about how that leads to uh, – about how segregation and where you live leads to leads to more negative opinions of folks who are not like you. And then to take uh, to take seriously what what Trump is tapping into is that there is a lot of people who feel very strongly that something is changing in this country, that something is at least partly or significantly demographic, and they don't like it, but most politicians won't touch it. Trump would touch it, and that unleashed a lot of energy in the Republican primary that combined with another a number of other idiosyncratic things brought him to to the place he is today. It's worth observing that the Republican leadership, to the extent that they have any capacity to do things collectively, right, had been trying really, really clearly to embrace American multiculturalism and multi-ethnicity. There was no sense from Republican Party leaders that the appropriate response to Barack Obama's two electoral victories was to like move to the center on the minimum wage or to move to the center on high-end tax cuts, right? There were a number of policy stances where Republican orthodoxy polls really, really poorly and where a party looking to win might have chosen to trim its sails. And they didn't really do that. Um, But they did make a really deliberate effort to put forward Marco Rubio, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, to some extent, you know, Jeb Bush is a white guy, but his wife is Colombian, right? Mm -hmm. And he speaks Spanish fluently. Um, This was a big, big... He says immigration is an act of love. Right. And one aspect of this was that some of these people supported a comprehensive immigration reform bill. Others, like Ted Cruz, did not. uh, But Ted Cruz is himself a Cuban-American. There was a real effort by Republicans to say, we do not want to be seen as the cranky old white people's party. We want to present ourselves as a party that is in touch with the non-political emerging aspects of a more diverse American culture. And that if we do that, if we show ourselves to be into electronic dance music and, you know, (laughs) have black friends and stuff like that, that we will persuade people of the merits of our free market economic message. That was like where they were going. And it created a void, right, for somebody to say, no, 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 like, Instead of blowing the same direction as these big changes in American society and demographics, we should complain about them, right? Which is natural. It's strange to have a large-scale social change and have both parties say they want to embrace it because that would imply that the change was completely uncontroversial. But we all know, right, when uh, I was um, 
watching a little Olympics coverage this morning. And they were doing this long interview with uh, an African-American woman who had won a swimming medal. And, you know, the interview was like in part about swimming, but like the premise of it was that this was an example to like young black women everywhere that they could swim really fast too. Um, and clearly they wouldn't be talking about that and they wouldn't have been talking about the the fencer who wears a hijab unless these changes were a big deal and were considered by the people who favor them to be a big deal but that had been hard to make happen because there had been resistance right exactly right it's not like the resistance often is subtle and you know swimming has like all kinds of socio-political and racial dimensions but it, it was this was not this idea that these things are big events to always be celebrated was not easily won. Right. And and to me, what we owe to Trump supporters is not to pretend that they are concerned about neoliberal financial capitalism, but is to acknowledge that like liberals are prosecuting a meaningful cultural war here and that you don't have to apologize for being on the side of of diversity and pluralism. But if you're winning, you shouldn't like gaslight the people who are losing and like tell them, oh, nothing's even happening. Right. right? Like they're allowed, the people on the losing side of these battles are allowed to feel like they are losing something and to try to fight back. Right. And like, I I think it's really misleading. It's confusing. It's condescending. It it leads to poor analysis to not acknowledge that if some people want to celebrate this stuff, other people are going to be upset. Like, that's why it's a battle. I think that is a good oration to end on. Uh, Thank you for tuning in for another episode of The Weeds. We'll be back next week with Sarah Cliff. Uh, Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. The Weeds is a co-production of Vox.com and Panoply, and we will see you soon.